Uh, I'd like to introduce Avon Silcock to you. Let's give him a warm welcome. Avon has owned his own business for 16 or 18 years? 18 years. 18 years as an electrician, and he employs a whole bunch of guys and a few ladies along the way. Uh, so, Avon, um, what's the, the main set of values that you have as a boss, as an employer? Um, firstly, can I just say, if you see Craig on a Sunday and he says who, he's tracking towards you, you just go, who, me, and you just go the other way. Because or else you'll be up here next Sunday, all right? Too right. Um, so, yeah, look, uh, thanks, church. Um, and uh, values for me, yeah, the, the values my company has is um, people, lifestyle, and family, um, along with honesty and integrity in business. Um, and how that came about was uh, I had a job uh, for a company, and they, after a couple of years, they said, oh, we want you to work on Saturdays from now on. And, I said, catch you later, um, because I thought, man, life is way too short, short to, um, to work the weekends, um, you know, with family and, and, and life, generally, eh? So I thought, well, I'll give this a crack on my own, and um, yeah, the first company policy was uh, we don't work Saturdays. Um, so that was that value. The other, the other values that sort of crept in as, as we grew um, were family were important, um, which fits in with the not working on weekends because we want people to, to spend time with their families, which we think is important. And, um, and people are important. The, the, main, the, the most important part of my business and the, the, actually the only part that interests me are the people um, because it's just an opportunity to, to, to have some input into their lives and see them and their families do better. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much our values. Good. So having these sort of values which flow out of your faith, I know you say you don't work Saturdays. Let me. I also know you get up at five in the morning as well. So you five thirty. Five thirty. Yeah. You're working hard. Um, but do these values cost you anything as a company, as individuals? Um, the look, they. Um, you could say that that costs. If you did the calculation, you know, you, I spend time with my my staff, and it's generally it's um, um, I'm paying for their time, which is a great opportunity without pushing the boundaries. You know. Um, for example, uh, if they ask me what I did on Sunday, I say, oh, well, as soon as you asked, I um, had this guy Tra Craig talk to us, and, um, and they, go, oh, they roll their eyes and go, oh, no, he's going to talk about how he went to church. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, in the time I spend with, with them individually, if some of them got an issue or some, stuff like that, that can cost. And we do stuff like, um, for example, if their, their kid has their first day at school, I release them to go and um, spend that, that morning with them. Um, that's a that's a compulsory thing I make them do, and and like if there's cross countries or stuff like that with their families, I make sure that they go, um, and I just generally say just put it down on your timesheet as uh, administration or something. Um, but if I did the calculation as as to whether it costs me financially, um, I would be on the win because the guys are happy, my staff turnover is minimal, mm. um, they work hard. Because they come from hopefully, you know, having a boss that that cares and cares about their family as well. I try make an effort to remember their kids' names and stuff like that, which is getting harder as there's more of them. But uh, you know, if once again, if I did the calculation, I'd definitely be on the win. So, how do you get on employing people compared to other electrical firms, your competitors? You know, um, 
There's yeah. A, there's a real demand out there for tradespeople at the moment. There's a demand for tradespeople and, um, you know, God is really faithful. He, I, I commit my business to him pretty much every morning and uh, first thing and um, the basically the miracles that happen are amazing and a big one is the provision of staff uh, in a market where you just can't get good, good tradespeople. Um, I work in with other electrical contractors and, 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 and non-Christian ones and... Um, I had a guy um, call me the other day, and I've known this guy for a long time. And um, he says, oh, "Avon, how do you get your how do you get your staff?" I said, "Oh, well, well I pray." It was a deadly silence. He goes, "So, Avon, how do you get your staff?" I said, "Bro, I pray. You know, you need to start praying." Um, and he kind of you could see him rolling his eyes over the phone and just saying, "What's this guy on?" You know. Um, but it's a true story, and I said, you know, I, I said to him, this, this guy's got, he's got an, he says, I've got an ad on Trade Me, Seek, and Trade Stuff, and I've got no one, no answers. I said, I don't even advertise, and I've got CVs coming across my desk every day, wow. um, well, every week. Um, and yeah, so it's, uh, it's amazing how God does provide if you're faithful. He is, he is faithful, mm. yeah. So in that sense, this builds your own faith as a, as a businessman, as a Christian, um, how does, how does that actually impact your own faith as you go forward? It um, builds my faith because, um, look, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer and to have a business like this going is a miracle in itself. Um, and, you know, it, it, it helps, helps me keep my faith sharp because tradesmen are, are a um, bunch of guys who are no-frills, non-PC, they don't take kindly to hypocrites and seeing, you know, they're constantly watching me and my family uh, on a daily basis mm. at our best and our worst. That's when you find out about people at work. Yeah. Um, so it helps me to keep my faith sharp. Sure. I have to, but, you know, I do try and tell them I'm forgiven as well, you know, if I do slip up, <laughs> which they appreciate too, I think, you know, the fact that we're honest yeah. and um, and not just up on a higher level. You know, we yeah. try, and, try and just... Let them see how we live, just um, following Jesus. Yeah, yeah, um, and keeping it real. Oh, that's cool. Well, thanks for your openness today. Uh, let's let's join together and pray for Avon, shall we? Father, we thank you for Avon and his wife Delwyn and the company that they run, that employs and influences so many uh, men and their families in this community. And we're just grateful that he's been able to put you first. And uh, by doing so, Lord, you've you've blessed them as a business but their level of influence amongst other families and helping them succeed is, is really, really high. And we just want to pray that for Avon, this is an easy burden, an easy oak to carry. And we just want to pray for all those men and women involved in his business. We just want to ask your blessing on their families. And may they continue to prosper as Avon seeks to put you first. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give them a round of thanks. <clears throat> Well, this morning, as you know, we're going on in this series called Who Me, and um, we've looked at a few characters from scriptures, and this morning we're going to look at one which you may well know quite well, and that's the name of Gideon. Gideon comes to us in Judges chapter 6, and he's a guy that I've got a lot of time and a lot of respect for. The reason being is that he reminds me of myself, and maybe today you'll find his story resonating with you a little bit, but uh, for me, he's the sort of guy who um, starts... Uh, well down the picking order, if you like, 
Uh, he doesn't have a great reputation, as we're going to discover, but God has met him in his place of fear. And the first thing that God said to Gideon is that we should, um, we should go in the strength we have. Oh, let's put that on. Go in the strength that you have. Now, one of the things about hearing a, hearing a, a saying like this, go in the strength you have, when God tells anybody to go in the strength they have, you immediately think this is all about doing God's business in your own strength. Um, we're talking here about this cross-pollination between the natural and the supernatural. Have you ever noticed that God will ask you, he'll extend you, he will push you and challenge you until such a point as you can go no further, and then that's when God steps in. Because if God takes his supernatural and moves it into the natural, where you can do the work, you have less ownership. Okay, It's a little bit like the businessman. And someone said to him, man, you're lucky to be running such a great business. And he says, you know what? I find that the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah? Isn't that true? For all of us, is that when we put our best foot forward and when we attempt to try to do the best thing we can for God, God will trust us and use us and put us in a place where he says, now, you've done the best you can. I'll make up the difference. And I'll help you to achieve whatever it is that you're achieving because as we're working through in God's will, we get to see what it is that God wants from us. So here we find this story that's going to begin in chapter 6 of Judges. And the opening line goes like this. It's a pretty common line in Old Testament Scripture. It said, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, I want to use this umbrella as an illustration. When we are in covenant with God, it's a little bit like this. We live under a cover, a covering of blessing. And when we're living under a covering of blessing, there's a sense in which we're protected by God, and God honors our commitment to him. And in this case, when the Israelites decided that they would follow other gods, fall into disobedience, that covering is removed. And when it's removed, essentially you're on your own. Okay, God's saying, look, walk with me, I'll walk with you. Uh, if you don't want to walk with me, that's fine, I'm not going to force you, but there's consequences for this. And so we find that in the eyes of the Lord, the Israelites did evil, and that evil was bowing down to foreign gods. We're going to pick up on that a little bit more in the story. But at that point, God just said, right, floodgates are open, the Midianites can come in. And so that's exactly what happens. But um, the thing about this sort of discipline is that we struggle at times to take responsibility for our own sins. You see, one of the things about human nature is that we're always trying to point at somebody else and say, this is your problem, not my problem. Okay? And so when God uses enemies for his purpose, we'd rather blame the enemy than ourselves. If somebody's giving you a hard time, you would rather say, hey, that person's got a problem, not me. You stop, don't stop to think how you might have contributed to that, that argument or that disagreement. King David was being chased by a group of people, chased out of his palace. And there's a great story there about a, a soldier throwing stones at David. And uh, David's men wanted to go off and kill this soldier because of the abuse that he was hurling at David. And David said, listen, at this moment, my own family are against me. This guy could actually be God speaking to me. Which is a real statement to make when he's going through a hard time. It'd be so easy just to have said, 
yeah, could somebody go and kill that guy who's giving me a hard time? But David had enough insight into his own life and enough awareness of whom God is to stop and say, this guy might actually be speaking to me from God. So let's not destroy him. Let's just think a little bit more soberly about what is going on. Now, if the Midianites had done that, they would have had a completely different picture of what's going on. There was a man who decided that he would go to his 40th year high school reunion, and uh, he's getting there dressed up, looking in the mirror, and he looks in the mirror and he goes, 40 years, haven't changed a bit. And off he goes to the reunion, and he comes back, and his wife says, how did the reunion go, dear? And he goes, you know, those old school friends of mine, they've got so old and antiquated, they couldn't even recognize me. Some of you have been there. <laughs> yeah, I won't tell my stories, but I'm having a few of those in recent times as well. But here we have a story that we're going to enter into now of a time when Israel was under the oppression of the Midianites. Okay, And what happens is God wants to teach people a lesson about how to live under his covenant blessing, but he also wants to uh, glorify himself. God never uses a difficult situation like this to take advantage of how it is that he will look after us and he will show us how that happens. So let's have a look at this passage of Scripture from Judges chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on all their land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, many of you have this similar picture of this happening in your mind. Every summer, we have people from Hamilton coming to Taronga and, and the Bay of Plenty. It's a, it's a little bit like this description, isn't it? They mentioned there ravaging the land, putting up their tents everywhere. You know, so we, we know what this is like as Bay of Plenty Taronga people. Okay, so we can identify with Israel here, of course. Well, the thing about this oppression is that it had put Israel into a survival-only mentality. A survival-only mentality, which, in all honesty, must be a desperate, desperate time. When you're worried about where your next lot of food is going to come from, you're worried about how your children are going to be raised, you're worried about where you're going to live. This sort of oppression does still happen today, as we know. But um, God had a plan for Israel, and God was going to make sure that Israel didn't stay in this place, but God wanted to glorify himself. And so to do that, he will do something that he's probably done with many of us over the years. He'll say, I'll take somebody who doesn't think they're up to it, and I'll get them to be somebody who I will use, and therefore I will be glorified, and this person and the people around are going to be very impressed. So God approaches through an angel, he approaches Gideon, and the story goes like this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, that's where she got her name from, that belonged to Joash and the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Well, the way in which the Jewish folks record their stories, Jewish folks love comedy and they love cynicism. Okay, they love cynicism in a way that we see it described here. Because the cynicism is straight away comes, straight away comes pouring out of Gideon. He goes, um, where is the God of our ancestors, the one who rescued us out of Egypt? Where is he? Is this God not basically saying, is this God not around anymore? Is this God not alive anymore? So it's this real deep cynicism. Okay, but there's an also a, a, a comedy going on here as well because the nature in which Gideon is being dis- described to us is as somebody who is desperately desperate, hiding, hiding away from the Midianites. And so you can imagine this picture that's being portrayed here. It's like this. You've got a, a wine press where all the grapes would have been put in, where people would have munched out the juice from the grapes, but instead, you've got Gideon in there with his, with his wheat or his barley, and he's trying to uh, thresh the wheat. Now, normally what would happen is they'd have threshing boards that they put weights on, and they drag these over the wheat, or they literally get the cattle to stand all over the wheat going round and round, and that breaks off the grain, and then they throw up the wheat into the air, and on a windy day, all the wheat, the chaff, blows, blows away, but the wheat remains. So if you can imagine yourself walking along beside Gideon's household, you see a hole in the ground, and you just see this chaff coming up and down, up and down, in the hole where there is no animal to tread it out, and there is no wind to blow the chaff away. This is comedy, okay? Sad comedy, but it's comedy, because the picture there gives an illustration of the hopelessness and the sadness that they're going through. And if there's one thing that the the Jews have traditionally celebrated about themselves is just how bad their lot can be at times, being God's favorite people. So this is part of that comedy that's being described here. And I think we have to look at it in in that way. So what does Gideon respond? How does Gideon respond? What does he say to this angel? Well, he replies in the classic words. He says, Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Well, these two statements are an absolute contradiction, aren't they? God's saying, I'm going to use you. You're going to strike down all the enemy. They're going to be totally wasted, totally destroyed. And he's saying basically something that would be a familiar pattern. You know, he would have heard his dad saying over and over again, our tribe is the least of the tribes of Israel and our clan is the poorest. Don't you forget that, son. We're destined to be the tail, not the head. Okay? You remember, our, our tribe is the least. Our clan is the least. So have no high expectation of yourself. We're destined to be at the very end of the line. Okay? So immediately we have this sort of patter come pouring out of Gideon where he declares, he declares with absolute confidence who he is in God and he is the least of the least. 
And God says, great, that's why I'm going to use you, okay? I was very lucky when I got on Google this week, I, I found a, an old picture of Joash and his son Gideon, okay? Here they are here, okay? And uh, they look really ready to fight, don't they? Hey, they're ready to take on the Midianites and destroy them and leave none alive, okay? I feel sorry for the young fella looking, you know, is that what I'm going to look like when I get about another 20 or 30 years on? That's not much to aspire to. But anyway, so Gideon now is in this mode where he's saying, I have to test the word of the Lord, okay? And that's a confidence thing, isn't it? And each one of us will be at a stage where we feel a prompting from God, but we're not 100% sure what it is that we should do with that prompting. And so therefore, to test God is to actually say to God, remind me again of what it is that you can do. Remind me again of what it is that you can do. And so what happens is he immediately talks to the angel, and he says, just wait there a second, I want to test you. He goes away, makes a broth, makes some bread, makes some meat, gets some meat, puts it on the rock, and the whole lot is consumed. He goes, okay, you win, first round to you. And so now Gideon is going out, to put himself to the test and put God to the test. Hey, Greg, can you just check the aircon, mate? We're getting pretty warm in here. We're having all sorts of fun with that. Thank you. So this is here we go, okay? The temperature's getting hotter. The tension is rising, okay? And uh, this is what happens. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of his height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So is Gideon now filled with Faith and courage, just enough. Just enough to go grab 10 servants in the middle of the night, get the cow, the old man's cow, run it up the hill to where the Asherah pole is and the Baal altar is, and they quietly, silently chop down the pole, which again is a bit of comedy, isn't it? Chop down the pole, just make it quiet. How do you do that? Well, they do. They chop down the pole, they make it quiet, they slaughter the bull, they make a sacrifice, and then his father wakes up in the morning, looks out to his altars on the hill, he says, hello, they're gone. Who's done this? And finally the word comes back that, um, that it's Gideon. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Look, of all the things that we're going to find Gideon doing, I think this is Gideon's finest hour, to be perfectly honest. Because there's nothing harder than being called by God to be the prophet in your own home. We read how a prophet is without honor in his own town. Why? Because we know little Johnny. We went to school with little Johnny. We've seen little Johnny get into trouble. We've seen little Johnny, you know, pull his sister's pigtails. He's not that righteous. But to be a prophet in your own home 
is essentially re-establishing these foundations. And this is why I use this illustration again. What Gideon was doing was saying to his father, look, Dad, you haven't served this household well at all. But God's raised me up, your son, and I'm telling you what it is that you should have done for our family. And he puts this, this covering again back over the family. Because there's no point going off and destroying the Midians, the Midianites, if you've still got Baal worship and Asherah worship going on in your back paddock, is there? You can have all these glorious victories for God, but if your own home is still a mess, then you've got to start working at home. And so this is essentially what Gideon is saying to his father. Dad, we've got to sort this, and we've got to sort it out right now. So what does Gideon do now? You'd think he'd be filled with confidence. Filled with confidence, good to go. Let's go, God. Let's go wipe out these Midianites. But no, guess what? Gideon's just like me, or just like maybe some of you. Gideon wants some reassurance again, again, that this is the right thing to do. So what happens? Gideon once again tests the word of the Lord. Okay? And, uh, and, and this, is, this is how he starts. He starts by saying, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, this is the start of Gideon's next conversation. Right in the opening line, what's going on? Gideon is telling God what he's already promised by way of opening up the conversation about how he is now going to ask God for another sign that God's promises are true, that he will be with Gideon. So Gideon says, if you save Israel by my hand as you promised, in other words, as you promised, you'll save Israel by my hand, and he goes on then to ask another favor. He goes, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so, only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Now, the beauty of this story is that, again, I keep saying, is it reminds us of who we are. We are people who need constant reassurance that God is with us. And I don't care how bold you might think you are, how courageous you might think you are, Gideon's story is a story of affirmation again and again and again. A story that tells us that we have permission to go to God even in our time of the smallest doubt. So what happens? Gideon now starts to build an army. And he builds an army of 32,000 fighting people. And that 32,000 fighting people are going to take on 130,000 Midianites who are camped over at the mount and he wants to go in there and push them back over the Kaimais to where they belong. Okay? And so this is how the story starts. He pulls these people together, and then God says to him, well, we have a problem, Houston. We have a problem. What could the problem be? Gideon's now doing what he was told. God says, now we've got a problem because 
we have too many people. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So what God is concerned about is how it is now that there was going to be so many people there fighting the Midianites, even though it's only a one-to-four ratio. God said, they're just going to think they did it in their own strength. So what does Gideon do? Gideon thinks to himself, I wonder if a few of these people are scared like I was. So he goes to them and he says, okay, God wants us to clear out the decks a little bit here. This is too many, too many people. And what does he do? He says, how many of you are scared? And of the 32,000, 22,000 put their hands up. And he says, you can go home. So 22,000 go, yay! And they disappear home, leaving 10,000. And then God says, 10,000 is way too many. And so he takes them down to the river, and uh, God says, watch the way they drink. And when the men have a drink, 9,700 of them get on their knees and slurp the water out by putting their faces in the water. And 300 use their hands as a cup and uh, drink the water with, with their hands. And God says to Gideon, those are the ones I want, the 300. And so the story rolls out now in such a way, you've got 300 versus 130,000. Uh, Gideon, you would know at this stage, is now nervous again. Okay? I would be. This time, Gideon doesn't bother to ask God for a sign. God knows that Gideon is going to ask for a sign. So he preempts this, and he talks to Gideon, and he says, look, I want you to go down to the Midianite camp, and I want you just to listen in on a conversation. This is the middle of the night. So Gideon creeps down to the Midianite camp, and he hears a man saying, oh, I've just had a bad dream. He goes, really? What was the bad dream about? He says, I just dreamt that there was this big loaf of barley bread rolled into the camp, our camp, and destroyed all the tents. He goes, wow, that's an intense dream. And he goes, I can interpret that for you. I think the barley was, is Gideon. I think the barley bread is Gideon. And it looks like Gideon's going to be used by the God of Israel to destroy us. So Gideon hears this, he thinks that's good news, and he goes back, and this is what happens. The three companies of 100 men times three blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Those are jars with candles in it and different things. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held the position, his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled back to Beth Shittah toward Zererah, as far as the border of Abel Mahola, near Tabath, next to Hamilton. Okay, and one of those towns is very responsible for polluting rivers. So, the response from Gideon was to honor God every time he felt that twitch of nervousness. For Gideon, fear was the call to prayer. 
It sounds good, doesn't it? Fear was the call to prayer. And just because God had reassured him once didn't stop Gideon from being humble enough to go back and say, hey, I need some more reassurance that we're in the right space, that we're heading in the right direction here. It's very easy to blow our confidence in the wrong direction by hearing from the Lord once and then getting the next set of directions. Yeah? Very easy to do that. But here God is saying to all of us through the story of Gideon, he's saying, look, I want to glorify myself in your weakness. You don't have to be strong to be a follower of Jesus. You just got to take that mustard seed of faith. And in doing so, you use it as a, as a, as a base for prayer. Because out of fear, you can pray. And you can ask God for perpetual reassurance that you're in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. And this is how God has always used his people throughout the ages. People who have gone on to do amazing things for God started with one small kind act or one small prayer or one small word spoken at the right time. And God will use us to do this. So the question for each one of us is, if we're going to go in the strength that we have, then we should go with confidence that God is going to highlight for us what it is that we're called to. And some of you right now could be sitting right on the very edge. You could be just simply starting to, to lean into something new of God, starting to go, mm, yeah, I can, but I'm not so sure. If you're in that place and space, maybe it's a, a relationship that you're, you're beginning to get, uh, uh, sorry, beginning to grow in. Maybe it's a fear that you're trying to overcome. Maybe it's something in your business or at work where you feel that you need to take that step of faith. Maybe it's something to do with finances. Maybe it's something to do with your health and you're just a little bit anxious about what you might find at the other end of that inquiry. These things are normal human things, but we can stop and we can hesitate. But when you stop and you have fear, that's the opportunity for prayer. Because Gideon got the victory out of all those things that gave him so much fear. God caused that to turn around and be the foundation for his victory. Why don't we stand? Father, we thank you for Gideon's story. In fact, we could probably do well to make Gideon our, our second name. For each one of us has a bit of Gideon in us, and each one of us are called to things that are going to seem so big. God, help us to be people who can see the fear, feel the fear, and pray anyway. Help us to be the people who say, God, this is too big for us, but in you, all things are possible. So, Father, I want to ask for your hand to be upon each of us and allow us to have confidence that that next prayer will take us through that next challenge, that next hurdle, whatever it might be. So, Father, I pray your blessing. Enrich our people to set aside fear and to move into prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.